Christians need to stop listening to the world and start listening to God so the thinking Christian becomes as natural as breathing. Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is Dr. James Spencer. Through calm, thoughtful, theological conversations, Thinking Christian offers a mix of interviews and discussions that highlight the ways God is working in the lives of his people and question the underlying social, cultural, and political assumptions that keep the church from conforming more closely to the image of Christ. Now, on to today's episode of Thinking Christian. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Thinking Christian. Today we are going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite subjects actually, which is the book of Genesis. Um, If you've listened to anything we've done on Useful to God, uh, we had actually a series on Genesis uh, that Richard and I talked through. But in this episode, we're going to be looking at something pretty specific, which is the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And then how that relates to the New Testament Great Commission of being and making disciples at the end of Matthew 28. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, if we go back to to sort of Genesis, you know, we see this original command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And that's kind of where things start for humanity. That's been the modus operandi, you could say, of humanity since the beginning. Yeah, and of course, it's repeated uh, several times in Genesis, uh, <laughs> where the uh, where there was a, a reboot <laughs> a couple of times. That's right. Yeah, and you actually and, see, it, yeah, you yeah. you see it structured throughout, you know, much of the Genesis narrative because even when you get to Abraham and Sarah, let's say, right. um, what is the problem there? Well, part of the problem is that they can't be fruitful and multiply. Right, and so the you know, having children was sort of a big deal in Old Testament times. It was how you pass things on to the next generation. There were inheritance issues. There were um, just um, the idea of being a firstborn. You know, we often think of that as like the initial child, right? right? The first one in the sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a good argument to be made in Old Testament studies that firstborn actually refers to who's going to be the sort of priest of the family. In other mm-hmm. words, who's going to um, carry on the uh, the covenant and the, the, the stories, the law, the order um, of that covenant? Who's going to carry that into the next generation? Mm-hmm. And so when we look at um, folks like Ishmael and Isaac in, in Abraham's case, but you can also see it with Jacob and Esau, right? You have a flipping, right? Um, because Ishmael's actually older, but Isaac is the child of promise. Jacob is actually younger. Um, Esau sort of disowns his birthright. Right. And so what we're seeing is that these people are actually going to be chosen to be fruitful and multiply in a particular way. Mm-hmm. It's not just biological, I don't think. I don't see it as just biological reproduction, although in the Old Testament, that's definitely the emphasis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has to do with being fruitful and multiplying. The purpose of it was to extend the glory of God all over the world. And so as you have people multiplying in a fallen world, it obviously implies that that next generation is going to carry through a an understanding of covenant and an understanding of what it means to be faithful to God that uh, could be lost from one generation to another. And it is kind of, um, the the Bible is in both the Old and New Testament, there's a progression of uh, how how God communicates this to his people. And uh, and we see that through these stories. 
and uh, that's uh, that's great. That and that's that's what we're that's what this whole show is going to be about, right? Yeah, and so I I think there's a couple of areas we could dive into here. So if we think about it, um, you've got biological reproduction, which you know kind of already talked through the fruitful multiply almost assumes biological reproduction, particularly in the Old Testament. Though I would say, um, I don't, I wouldn't limit it specifically only to that. Mm -hmm. And so you do have instances of barrenness and the barrenness being overcome. Um, you see this even into the New Testament in the, uh, the story of John the Baptist's birth, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth ha can't have children. And yet, when God sends Gabriel to tell uh, John, ba or I'm sorry, Zechariah, that they're going to have John the Baptist, Zechariah is like, I don't see how that's going to work. Right. Um, can I, can you give me a sign that that's actually going to happen? But, you know, overcoming barrenness is one of the things that God consistently does across both Testaments mm -hmm. to demonstrate that he is in charge of this, that he is going to bring life out of something where no life could come. Right. And so it, it is a pretty important aspect, this biological reproduction, uh, to the extent that it it demonstrates both, you know, uh, human um, capacity to spread the um, the glory of God across the world, but also that God is going to overcome a human limitation in order to have something happen that will allow Him to be glorified. Also, the greater community becomes the church. Uh, not that we get to mega churches, but no, but I, I think this is where I think a lot of people may not make these connections. But what right. I would also just say, you know, when we think about that firstborn concept, what's really happening there is that as this, this person is born, what you're seeing is, are they going to uphold the authority of God? Mm -hmm. And so you have all these different kids who are born to people. I mean, jo uh, Jacob had 12 sons. Right. right. Joseph right. seems to be the best of them at a particular point in time. But then Judah goes on to, you know, have sort of a legacy of his own. Ephraim goes on to have a legacy of his own. It wasn't like they never did anything else. And so right. the question becomes, of all these children, who is going to uphold the authority of God? Mm -hmm. And that authority of God is actually quite significant. Uh, because, again, post-fall, what we're looking at with authority is... Will people walk faithfully with God? Will people obey his commands? Will people point to and magnify him as sort of the animating focus of their lives? Hmm. That's what we're really looking at in these passages. And so there's a, there's a component of, uh, we can call it multiplication or reproduction, right? That is, I think, particularly in the Old Testament, largely biological. Right. And then there's this component of authority, Will those who were reproduced actually sit underneath God's authority, understand who he is, and accept his authority as the governing focus of their lives? Right. And so now as we sort of move into the New Testament, what we find is the Great Commission, right? Um, and the Great Commission is, um, you know, begins actually with Jesus saying, uh, I have been given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus makes reference to this authority that he has. And what he's going to tell the disciples to do is almost the downstream consequence of that authority. Mm. So because I have authority, here's what's going to happen. I want you now to go from here. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. Right. 
and, and so we have this linkage again in the New Testament, and particularly the Great Commission between authority and reproduction. Hmm. And so while it doesn't, you know, necessarily hearken back specifically to be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth. What I think it shows is that there is a, at least a thematic continuity between the two. Right. And there are some people who actually connect this to um, Great Commission in Second Chronicles. There's a part in Second Chronicles where the Persian king at the time announces that he is going to allow the Israelites to go back and rebuild God's temple. And so he speaks about authority right. and he's telling them to go. And he's, you know, there's all these different sort of verbal resonances that you have in that passage and the Great Commission. And so it's kind of an interesting parallel, which would make a much closer connection to, I think, the New Testament Great Commission and the Old Testament story. And I guess there's an argument to, to be made. Um, I don't know if it's an argument, uh, but it is uh, also something that coincides when you think of first Kings and second Kings. There was a there were this is a, a king who did things that were pleasing in God's sight. These were this is a, a king who did things that were not pleasing. Uh, right. So that that was often uh, that was the end of that reign in in one way, and also that line uh, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, and, and it was you know you have these sort of mix of kings that are coming in. They're good or they're bad, right. but all of that has to do with sitting under the authority of God. Yeah. You know, and, and as we really consider what that means, then, as we go out and make disciples today, mm -hmm. what we're really doing is we are extending the and expanding the community of people who recognize God's authority right. around the globe, who recognize Christ's authority around the globe. And that, I think, is why um, discipleship involves baptism, right? So in baptism, we are... Uh, symbolically burying ourselves with Jesus Christ in his death. Mm -hmm. And so there's a wholehearted commitment. Right. Right. Um, like I'm ready to, it's like ride or die. I'm going to like, this is it. I'm, I'm with Jesus. And there, there is a wholehearted commitment there. And then you also have teaching to obey all that Christ commanded. And so what we're doing in discipleship is we are in teaching people to obey what we're really saying is we want you to sit underneath the authority of Jesus Christ, where this all fits into sort of the sanctity of human life story, which is what we're discussing this month, uh, you know, across all these different shows. Um, when we think about life, particularly in the biblical corpus, one of the things that we really need to reckon with is that life in its fullest is defined in unity with Jesus Christ and that there is a way to live life that um, is out of unity, obviously, with Jesus Christ, and that discipleship is a way for us to really tie into Jesus in important ways. It's a way for us to access his teachings, to live underneath them, to recognize his authority, and to um, live a life that imitates all that he did and said. And uh, again, you know, we've talked about imitation before. It doesn't mean that we all put on sandals and walk around, um, you know, Israel. That's not what it means. But it does mean that we model our lives after Jesus. And so when we think about the sanctity of life, you know, obviously this starts in the Old Testament. We start to see um, the, uh, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That obviously has a, an immediate context of life. 
In other words, that God is going to um, produce life or he wants humans to produce life and reproduce themselves. There is a biological mandate, right, to reproduce. But there's also a, a slightly different wrinkle, even in that context, because the, the word subdue um, in that context isn't simply about, I don't think, just um, getting rid of your enemies. I think what subdue is, is, you know, eliminating that which does not glorify God in some way. And so the subduing has to do with the way that life is going to spread and the way of life that is going to spread. Now, that takes different iterations throughout the Old Testament. Obviously, when we look at the word subdue throughout the rest of the Old Testament, outside of this original context of Genesis uh, 1, um, where we're given the create, you know, the mandate um, to go, go be fearful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. When we look at subdue throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's normally associated with um, physical domination of one party over another. Mm. And that can be in the context of war or several other contexts. And so it does take on a more violent uh, or violence-oriented sort of feel. Um, but in that original context, it's difficult to believe that that's what's necessarily inferred there. What mm. would it have meant for Adam and Eve to go to war with creation? Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense there. But what I think is happening is that Israel is sort of framing this original creation narrative and trying to understand that the they're, what they're doing in relation to the nations is the same mandate that was given to Adam and Eve originally. Hmm. And so life then becomes not simply being biologically alive. And from a Christian and theological perspective, the sanctity of life is now found at its fullest when we sit beneath the authority of Jesus Christ. So proclaiming Jesus is Lord is crucial, I think, to getting to the zenith of what it means to be truly human. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. How many times in history do you think that that mandate has been misused? I think an awful lot. Uh, I think that, you know, as we, I think as humans sort of try to move and, and, and fit with each other, what we ultimately end up doing is we end up sort of merging um, our own authority with God's authority. And so, you know, we, we get into this point where we see something happening that's wrong. We want to fix it. Obviously, if we think it's wrong, God thinks it's wrong. He would want us to fix it. And so our actions become sort of a downstream, downstream consequence of what God would want. And so we start to think that everything we're doing is in the name of God. But the reality is that I think uh, oftentimes we are out on a limb in our actions, maybe not in our beliefs. You know, we may believe rightly that this isn't something that God would want. Um, We may believe and recognize that injustice is happening or what have you. But it's when we decide how to go about treating that injustice deciding that God would want us to do whatever it takes to get rid of that injustice, you know, opting out of our distinct relationship with God as the church in order to do things that he has given to the state. I think some of those things are, have been very much misused. And this is where I would, I would say a lot of, you know, claims that, um, you know, religious wars have been the most vicious throughout history, um, sort of missed the point. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, um, all wars are, to some degree, religious wars. That separation between sacred and secular is an important one, um, and right. I've used it before. I think there is a difference between sacred and sep- secular, but I don't think it's a clean distinction. I right. think that the sacred is often political, rightly political. Again, Jesus is Lord is a political claim. <laughs> and we're saying that, you know, it, Romans 13, 1 through 7, folks, and you read through that, that's a political claim. It's basically saying that all rulers sit under our God. That's a political claim. Um, And I think that oftentimes the secular makes religious claims or claims to divinity. Um, They try to inspire our allegiance and they try to, uh, you know, get us to commit who we are, what we are and what we have to a common cause that is very much national or secular. And so these things are not mutually exclusive. I think they are distinct, but there's a, there's a spectrum here that we need to recognize. And as well, we're trying to live in that sanctity of life moment, um, that's where we see this deep overlap. And for Christians, mm-hmm. we need to distinguish what is really theologically sanctity of life versus what is sanctity of life in its more generic understanding. Well, this seems to be a good place to take a break. And so, uh, and so, what are we going to talk about when we uh, when we come back? We're going to talk a little bit about the way that we can move discipleship toward and, and frame discipleship as an exercise in the sanctity of human life. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Uh, so, before we left, uh, you know, I said we were going to talk a little bit about how we can use discipleship and think about discipleship as cultivating sanctity of human life. So, again. You know, we've talked about this in previous episodes where I don't really think that the sanctity of human life can be encapsulated in one single issue. And um, discipleship to me 
because if we if we look at it in terms of the you know helping other people live under the authority of christ Hmm. if that's really what discipleship is about teaching others to um, observe all that christ commanded Mm -hmm. what we're really doing is we're helping people understand what it means to live a sanctified human life we're, we're, we're pointing them away from all the other solutions, all the other false stories, all the other uh, strategies and mechanisms for becoming more human. And we're saying, look, all of those may have some truth to them. But Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And so this is how you live according to his rules and regulations. This is how you imitate him. This is how you become truly human. And that aspect that that is what discipleship really and truly is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and you know, we were talking about uh, we were talking about kings, and, uh, and yeah. I, yeah. one thing that I didn't mention was that God never wanted humans to have kingship over people, and uh, and that that was actually saying. You want a you want a human being to be uh, to to follow, and th- there's no need for that. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting history, man. Because I mean, you know, you have sort of the, the narrative of First Samuel, um, where the Israelites are going to ask for a king, right? And Samuel's really lamenting this, and he feels rejected because he's the judge. Right. And so his kids were kind of messed up. And so they're kind of like, we don't want to get stuck with them, Samuel. Um, if we could do a king, that'd be awesome. So why don't you check that out with God? And uh, and Samuel's feeling rejected. And God says, no, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Right. And I find that so interesting, because even if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy and Se- Deuteronomy 17, before there was ever a, a, a king in mind, I mean, barely before the nation, I mean, the nation hasn't even entered the promised land uh, in Deuteronomy, right? Israel hasn't entered the promised land. They're not settled. They're still sort of a people on the move. But in Deuteronomy 17, God gives instructions for the Israelite king, anticipating that something like this will or could happen. And one of those instructions, which is really compelling, is the king is to write his own copy of the law every year and then sort of have it checked by the priests. Mm-hmm. And that that process, I think it's really compelling, you know, as I think about Deuteronomy 17 and discipleship, right, teaching others to uh, observe all that Christ commanded. Mm-hmm. That's really what's what what that legislation for the king is intended to do. So if we think about what that would have entailed back then, right, even if you just thought about sitting down now, not using artificial intelligence and typing out the entire Old Testament like on Microsoft Word, you know, it's going to take some time. Like I don't type that fast. I'm assuming most of our listeners don't type that fast. And so it's just going to take a really long time. The king's having to sit down amidst the rest of his duties, running the kingdom, Mm -hmm. staving off enemies, you know, doing whatever other kingly stuff he's supposed to do. He is supposed to make time to write his own book of the law every year. Yeah. And I think what it's intended to do is to situate Israelite kingship under God's authority, right? Writing that law was to be a reminder of the king, look, 
you do not in any way, shape, or form have ultimate authority about what is going on in Israel. You rule at my behest. You rule. I have, I've given you delegated authority. But that delegated authority is not really from yourself. It's from me. Mm -hmm. I'm handing it to you. You are to exercise it appropriately. And so you need to know this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's this interesting, almost royal act of discipleship. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Or the king is sitting under that authority. And, and again, as we go back into discipleship, that's what we're doing for other people. It's what we're doing for ourselves. When I read the Great Commission, I, I really do read it as our commission is to be and make disciples. Because it's very difficult to make disciples if you're not already a disciple yourself. Right. And so we're constantly going back to the scriptures and learning to live under all that Christ observed or all, under all that Christ commanded. And just like those old Israelite kings, right, who, who would have benefited from <laughs> writing copies of the law, right. would have been fantastic if they actually did it. There's not a lot of sense that they did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in fact, we have instances, particularly like um, Josiah, right? Um, somebody's rummaging around the temple and they find an old copy of the law. They dust it off. They bring it to Josiah and he's like, oh, my gosh, where has this been all my life? Like they had, they really just haven't seen it. Wow. And to his credit, you know, he makes a lot of these reforms, but yeah. it's sort of too late for the nation. And so God, and God makes a provision for him. And he says, listen, I'm not going to let you see what I'm going to do to this nation. Mm -hmm. You're going to mm -hmm. die before all that happens. Right. But yeah, the, the law seems to have lost, um, been lost amongst mm -hmm. the Israelite Kings. And so now what are they doing? Well, they're ruling Israel according to their own authority. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, erosion by neglect. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I suppose some of my Bibles get a little dusty around here, but you know, I like to think that uh, I'm still reading it occasionally. So crack and, it open. <laughs> yeah, I, I know where they are. They're sitting right in front of me here. I can see them from where I'm sitting, and so all on my cell phone. Yeah. So, you know, for, for that to have happened in Israel was certainly a problem. Right. And, and it points to this idea that the kings really did turn out uh, to neglect God in many ways. Not all of them, but many mm -hmm. of them. When you look at uh, the church and you look at the, um, the, the offices of, uh, of eldership or any, any of the other uh, deaconship and sure, everything sure. else— and you see some of the, the things that, uh, you know, you're qualified to be this if, you know, you have your own family in order. You have all of these things. Um, you, you know, you kind of wonder how how that works today uh, in, in, in some, some ways. And, you know, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I look at it sometimes and I say, boy, I, I don't think that I'm qualified to be an elder. If, uh, you know, and, you know, but um, is that the same type of thing, too, that, you know, if, if you have all these things going and you are, you know, you're you're in the word and you're doing these things and you're living this life uh, in this way, um, that is part of mentorship and leadership as well. Is that akin to uh, the kingship and those kind of things? Yeah, I, I I tend to think it is. It's a similar dynamic. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, 
what is intended to happen, whether you're looking at it from a church perspective, a family perspective, um, any sort of system or structure where you have some level of authority, you know, someone has some level of authority over another. Mm -hmm. We recognize that or need to recognize that as delegated authority. Right. Um, the concept of servant leadership has been out there for a really long time. It's not one that I'm particularly fond of. I'll just say that. Um, I, I, but I do appreciate the idea that um, the leaders are to serve. My problem with the paradigm is that it tends to become serve the people that you're leading and only serve the people that you're leading. Whereas I would say servant leadership is actually rooted in God's authority over us. We're always mm -hmm. serving the Lord and that service of the Lord emanates out to other people. So very similar to what we find in like the greatest commandment and the second one, which is like it, you know, love the Lord, your God and love the neighbor. Right. But I do think the dynamic is similar when we look at those qualifications for elders, mm -hmm. right? It, it is this idea that um, if you're going to be, in charge and exercising any form of authority over God's people, you need to be relatively in touch with God. Right. And you need to be fairly undistracted from things that might distract you, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And, and cause you to um, ignore God's people or might cause you to make decisions that are more about you than they are about God. Hmm. And, and so I think that there is that sort of sense within those, um, within those uh, rules. Now, is it exactly the same thing as the Israelite Kings? No, I think it's, you know, I think it's a, a fair stretch, you know, hmm. um, the practices of Israelite Kings and the sort of authority they wielded were completely different than that exercised by elders. But in principle, what I would just say is, yes, if you're going to be in charge of people, right, recognizing that you have your authority comes from God, mm -hmm. thus should refocus your energies toward being right with God. Right. And I think a lot of the times as we're dealing, you know, church, church and state sort of issues or, you know, when we're looking at um, U.S. government and those kind of things, part of the role of the church needs to be. And I, I really mean that needs to be reminding the state that they do not have sole authority, that they have a delegated authority from God. We do that. We can do that by speaking it and saying it, right? We can do that by proclaiming it. Um, but we also do that by the way that we live. The things that we refuse to do, um, the way that we uh, put ourselves out as opposed to accepting some of the prosperity that might come from government. Uh, you know, there's a myriad of ways that we can do that in practice. Right. Right. By just simply not depending on the state to do X, Y, or Z for us. Mm -hmm. But it is absolutely something we need to do. And so this principle that we're looking at, you know, everything from be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it all the way through to make disciples there is a thread that comes through that is, listen, we sit under the authority of God. And a big part of what it means to be truly human is to live underneath that authority and to recognize that we're living underneath that authority. This is the role of the church in within the church. I think it's incumbent on leaders, just Richard, as you brought up, like we need to be under the authority of God. And that entails certain things those right. rules for elders, those rules for kingship, 
Those are great examples of activities that we perform to sit underneath the authority of God. As believers, we're also to make disciples and help others sit underneath that authority. And and when I say that, I know that comes off that language today is not great, right? It's almost like bad language, sit under someone else's authority. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to read, you know, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded other than saying we're teaching them to sit under the authority of Christ. Our problem with that sort of language is that usually um, there are times, I shouldn't say usually, there are times when people um, substitute their own authority for Christ's authority. And that needs to be, we need to be cautious about that. But at the end of the day, what we're really trying to get people to do is to live like Christ lived. And then I think the third wheel of this is as we go into the nations, right? Because I think there is an evangelistic uh, component to discipleship. It's very difficult to make disciples if you don't first share Christ with them. Sort of a, you know, an initial step. And so I think that we do need to be proclaiming this to a world that does not recognize Christ's authority. And that's what we proclaim in word and deed. And so it, it does it does take on those three components. And, and I think with those those components then comes a really a strong recognition that true life is found only in Jesus Christ. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this. Actually, we're going to wrap it up. And, uh, you know, we it's it's no way exhaustive because <laughs> we could probably do about five shows on on this very issue. So uh, so uh, so stick around. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Diet Coke. (laughs) All right. All right. Hey everybody, welcome back. We want to close the show a little bit by just talking about what does it mean to how do we go about making disciples? What does that really look like? You know, if we are um, sort of thematically connecting these, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it with making disciples, it begs the question of what does it look like to be involved in discipleship? Uh, I think, you know, what I would say is, you know, at least two things. It involves finding folks in and around your environment who are actively teaching you to sit under Christ's authority. Um, that can involve accountability. That can involve Bible teaching. That can involve a number of different things. But the reality is that you have people in your life. You're not living a such an isolated life. That there's no one involved in your life that can sit back and say, you know, I don't really think 
that you're walking like Christ would walk right now. You might want to try X, Y, or Z, or you might want to read this, or you might want to do that. Like we need that in our lives. So that's component one. Mm -hmm. And I think component two is just being that for other people. It's a pretty simple paradigm, right? Uh, helping other people, having the relationship with other people, right. right? Where when we when we come in and we say, hey, I need to talk to you about something and it's going to be a difficult conversation, that that doesn't end the relationship, but it strengthens the relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like that. And, uh, you know, I, I was just, um, I was talking about another another issue with somebody and I was talking about, talking about calling and we were talking about mm. uh, different things and 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 finding joy in our work because of it and uh you know it's it's a it's a really interesting thing that when you when you realize how easy that really is to do <laughs> yeah um you know sometimes again you know you've heard it said that we're our own worst enemy sometimes right and we Definitely. we're yeah. fighting yeah. against ourselves when we're fighting when we're fighting god on these things right right so right. uh right. so it's the same thing with discipleship it's yeah. a really yeah. joyful thing fellowship is supposed to be cool <laughs> it's, it's supposed right. to be right. uh it's supposed to be a good thing and there's a lot of joy in it yes there's going to be a little bit of sadness in it too there's going to be uh because and people still get sick. They still die. They still all of those things. But wow, you get to experience these relationships, and and you're pointing uh, that arrow towards home uh, in in um, in so many ways. There's a lot of joy in that. But I think the other aspect of that joy is we all have a common purpose, and to yeah. the extent that we can embrace that common purpose, uh, I think it is a much more joyful experience. Honestly. Um, we had a, just a couple of shows and they'll be airing, um, uh, at some point, um, we had a couple of shows on lament and, right. um, you know, I think, uh, what I learned just talking with, uh, Brian Babcock is one of the guests, May Young was the other. And, uh, when I, what I listened to talking with them was the necessity of lament for forming strong relationships within the community of faith. Right. Um, I think a lot of times we, when we don't lament, our relationships can become very superficial. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I've come away from those conversations thinking to myself, man, uh, I'm not given to emotional outbursts. Um, I'm pretty even keel kind of guy. Right. Um, right. And if I do feel something, I tend to swallow it and just say, ah, it's not really worth addressing. Right. Um but there have been moments in my life where I've really sort of broken down. And I, I think that um, lament did draw me closer to people. And yeah. um, as I think back on those moments, the people who were there for me, the people who really cared for me, um, I remember them being there for me and caring for me in a way that's special. And, oh, yeah. uh, and you know, so at least in my mind, you know, the bond that I have with them is is different than the bond that I have with many other folks. And so I think there's this this idea of common purpose, and and as we have that common purpose, it should open us up to do things like lament, to do things mm -hmm. like confession, um, to do things like holding one another accountable, um, to do things like rebuking one another and exhorting one another, and um, that really, to me, doesn't happen on a podcast. I think there's a lot that we can do on a podcast, and, right. but at the end of the day, I can 
count on one hand the number of times I've listened to a radio preacher and said, wow, I'm really convicted about that. I, I just don't connect with them in the same way as I connect with someone at my church. Mm -hmm. And so if my pastor tells me something, if a friend from church tells me something, somebody I'm worshiping with week in and week out, serving with week in and week out, if someone like that tells me something, I listen. Right. You know, and, and I so I would just encourage all of you as we're kind of closing up this conversation on discipleship. Discipleship happens in the local church. Mm -hmm. There's tons of supplemental stuff. Uh, I mean, this podcast, everything we have at usefultogod.com hopefully helps you sort of grow spiritually and open yourself up to God's word and um, to, you know, sort of be ready to build some of those relationships in your church. Mm -hmm. But discipleship happens in the church. Yeah. It happens in the real concrete lived world. It is not a virtual thing. It's something that you have to have personal connections that can be immediated, I suppose. But at the same time, I just really feel like, man, living in the same community, dealing with the same pressures, you know, and having the same concrete realities as people, it's just really crucial. So my encouragement, you know, get involved in your church, uh, get involved in discipleship, um, cultivate relationships where people can call you out for not living under the authority of Christ, encourage you to live under the authority of Christ, and that you can do the same for them. Good word. Well, thanks, James. Uh, appreciate it. And um, yeah, you know, there was, uh, I, I just want to say one thing that, um, and you talked about lament. Uh, there was, there's been a study on, um, you know, why kids are, are, are so anxious right now. Mm. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of studies on, on especially teens. Uh, and you think about the, uh, the gun violence and all of the other things that happen. Um, the conclusion is, is that we don't let people grieve anymore. We don't let people lament. And that tends to, you know, it's, you know, suck it up, buttercup, move on. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that's actually, when you think about that, isn't that part of discipleship is to say, is to, to come alongside those people and and let them have that time uh to to talk about those things it definitely is i mean i think you know again in discipleship what we're really trying to do is we're trying to help people understand how to go about imitating christ mm -hmm. and christ has his moment in the garden right christ has his moment weeping over jerusalem christ has his moment weeping over lazarus right like these are all times where you watch jesus in anguish, in mourning. He was not shy about doing those things. He had feelings and he was able to express them. And he expressed them in appropriate ways. Even his cries from the cross. And you know, they demonstrate the depth of his spirituality. And so I think that there is a, a very real sense in which we are doing ourselves a disservice if we are telling people, listen, um, you know, I jokingly, I have twins uh twin girls and so when they were little i would jokingly talk to them about listen feelings are supposed to be buried down deep right um <laughs> and they did not take that to heart they knew daddy was joking um but uh but at the end of the day i i do think we need to focus in and help kids mourn right i think it's an appropriate practice and i think 
you know, things in the world are going to go wrong. You've got to know how to deal with it. It can't just all be, you know, toughening up and moving forward, toughen up and moving forward. There has to be a sense in which we recognize the loss that we have here. Right. And I, and I think that as a component of discipleship, where we're looking at Jesus's life and we're saying, look, do what Jesus did, be who Jesus was. There were times where he was angry, mournful, frustrated, you name it. Um, the whole range of human emotions. He just did it in a way that was always aimed at the glorification of God and the building up of others. Alrighty. Well, we'll see you next time. Thanks for being here. I want to take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the Thinking Christian Podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Life Audio. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hard-working pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.